We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? About four or five times more work than what we anticipated, and the pilot Bowser is completely locked over, nearly frozen over. In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Open uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 86 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Jiminy Twelve with Jim Lovell and Edwin Buzz Aldrin. You may recall from episode 76 the tragic deaths of the prime crew for Jiminy 9, Elliot C. and Charles Bassett, whose plane crashed into one of the buildings at the McDonald plant. The backup crew was Tom Safford and Gene Cernan, and they were moved up to the new prime crew for the redesignated Jiminy 9A. Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin were moved from being the backup crew of Jiminy 10 to the backup crew of Jiminy 9A. This move cleared the way through the crew rotation for Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin to become the prime crew of Jiminy 12. The other tragic event the deaths of Grissom, White, and Roger Chaffee in the fire of Apollo 1 helped determine the makeup of the first seven Apollo crews, and who would be in position for a chance to be the first, or in this case, the second man to walk on the moon. But enough of the future. This is Jiminy 12. You probably remember Jim Lovell from his Jiminy 7 mission, where he and Frank Borman rendezvoused with Jiminy 6A and spent 14 days in orbit of the Earth. Jim's biography was covered in episode 66, so let's move on to Edwin Buzz Aldrin's brief biography. Edwin Eugene Aldrin, Jr. was born on January 20, 1930 in Montclair, New Jersey, to Edwin Eugene Aldrin, Sr. and... Marion Moon Aldrin. His mother, Marion Moon, was the daughter of an army chaplain. His father, Edwin Eugene Aldrin Sr., was a colonel in the U.S. Air Force. The nickname Buzz originated in childhood. The younger of his two elder sisters mispronounced brother as Buzzer, and this was shortened to Buzz. Aldrin made it his legal first name in 1988. In 1947, Buzz graduated from Montclair High School in Montclair, New Jersey, and headed to West Point Military Academy in New York. He took well to the discipline and strict regimes and was the first in his class his freshman year. He graduated third in his class in 1951 with a B.S. in Mechanical Engineering. After his graduation, Buzz was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force. 
Aldrin's father felt his son should continue on to multi-engine flight school so that he could eventually take charge of his own flight crew. But Buzz wanted to become a fighter pilot. His father relented to his son's wishes, and after a summer of hitching around Europe on military planes, Buzz officially entered the U.S. Air Force in 1951. He again scored near the top of his class in flight school and began fighter training later that year. During his time in the military, Aldrin joined the 51st Fighter Wing, where he flew F-86 Sabre Jets and 66 combat missions in Korea. During the Korean War, F-86 planes fought to defend South Korea from the invasion of communist forces in North Korea. Aldrin's wing was responsible for breaking the enemy kills record during combat when they shot down 61 enemy MiGs and grounded 57 others in one month of combat. Aldrin shot down two MiGs and was decorated with the Distinguished Flying Cross for his service during the war. The June 8, 1953 issue of Life magazine featured gun camera photos taken by Aldrin of one of the Soviet pilots ejecting from his damaged aircraft. After a ceasefire was declared between the North and the South in 1953, Aldrin returned home. He was assigned as an aerial gunnery instructor at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada and next was an aide to the Dean of Faculty at the U.S. Air Force Academy, which had recently begun operations in 1955. He flew F-100 Super Sabres as a flight commander at Bitburg Air Base, West Germany, in the 22nd Fighter Squadron. Buzz also returned to school, this time at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he planned to complete a master's degree and then apply for test pilot school. Instead, he earned a Ph.D. in aeronautics and astronautics, graduating in 1963. His thesis subject was line-of-sight guidance techniques for manned orbital rendezvous. It was the study of bringing piloted spacecraft into close proximity with each other. The dedication of his thesis read, quote, In the hopes that this work may in some way contribute to their exploration of space, this is dedicated to the crew members of this country's present and future manned space programs. If only I could join them in their exciting endeavors. End quote. After completion of his doctorate, he was assigned to the Gemini Target Office of the Air Force Space Systems Division in Los Angeles. His specialized study of rendezvous helped to earn him entry into the astronaut program shortly thereafter. But his initial application to join the astronaut corps was rejected on the basis of having never been a test pilot. However, that prerequisite was eventually lifted and when Buzz reapplied, he was accepted into the third astronaut group. Aldrin was put in charge of creating docking and rendezvous techniques for spacecraft. He also pioneered 
the underwater training techniques to simulate flight in zero gravity. In 1966, when serving on the backup crew for Gemini 9A, Aldrin used his Ph.D. studies to improvise an effective exercise for the spacecraft to rendezvous with a coordinate in space. Also in 1966, he was selected as pilot for the Gemini 12 mission. With the biographies completed, we will begin Gemini 12 shortly after the splashdown of Gemini 11. This was when NASA program officials began to concentrate on getting Gemini 12 ready for flight. Astronaut Richard Gordon's troubles outside the Gemini 11 spacecraft greatly complicated pre-mission planning, as did the lack of specific goals. Jim Lovell complained that essentially Gemini 12 didn't have a mission. It was, by default, supposed to wind up the Gemini program and catch all those items that were not caught on previous flights. The only firm thing in the whole flight plan for a while was the Astronaut Maneuvering Unit, or AMU. But was the AMU firmly in the mission plan? After Gemini 9A, Major General Ben Funk had begun to worry about the chances of ever flying the Air Force's AMU in the Gemini program. Gil Ruth assured him that it would be given every consideration because extravehicular activity was a primary objective for Gemini 12. When Collins had so little trouble on the Gemini 10 EVA, hopes that the unit would get its first chance to fly was revived again. But when Gordon suffered exhaustion and overheating, the EVA question was again as wide open as Gene Cernan had left it. Was there some mystery here that the Gemini engineers had not been able to unravel? No history of the Gemini program would be complete without a discussion of the Gemini Mission Review Board. The board's first pre-mission meeting for Gemini 12 was held in Houston, where the members were being briefed on the AMU at the exact moment when Gordon was struggling with the umbilical exercise of Gemini 11. Although McDonnell had made all the spacecraft changes that Mike Collins had suggested, they did not seem to be making Gordon's task much easier. But talking and guessing were futile, and the board soon returned to the subject on the agenda, the AMU which appeared to be well-qualified, but a little complex. At their next meeting, the four members of the board agreed that the EVA experience from previous missions was the only factor having serious potential impact on the Gemini 12 mission. Their first recommendation was to strike the AMU from Gemini 12 because the pilot's chance of getting into it and using it successfully seemed small, because the unit's potential value could not offset the risk involved in its use, and because the 120 minutes of EVA planned for the final mission should be devoted to a series of simple tasks that could be measured accurately in terms of workload. Mueller agreed 
with the board and on September 30th told the Air Force why the AMU was being deleted from Gemini 12. This is what he said, quote, It is noteworthy that past EVA has revealed problems that appear less yielding to straightforward engineering solutions than other problems encountered in the Gemini program. The EVA task plan for Gemini were designed to become increasingly complex and demanding on succeeding missions, and although the experience gained on a particular mission has been carefully applied to later missions, the results has proven less than completely successful. In fact, it becomes increasingly apparent that the techniques and procedures devised for EVA have evolved from analysis, theories, and experimental concepts that in certain critical instances and for reasons currently beyond our grasp are not entirely accurate. Consequently, I feel that we must devote the last EVA period in the Gemini program to basic investigation of EVA fundamentals through repetitive performance of basic, easily monitored and calibrated tasks. But even while the board was being briefed on the AMU, Buzz Aldrin was practicing with it underwater in a swimming pool at McDonough, Maryland. Later, a flight-ready AMU was installed in Spacecraft 12's adapter at Cape Kennedy. But, on September 23rd, the day Mueller received the review board's recommendations, the AMU was pulled out. Aldrin, who had once worked in the Air Force Experiments Office in Houston, was disappointed at the loss of the AMU. He was also concerned about what was to take its place in the fast-approaching mission. By July, the crew of Gemini 12 was being assigned some rather precise objectives. In fact, the flight was soon extended to four days to give the crew time for experiments that depended on nighttime operation. Over the course of the program, mission planning had steadily progressed to expand manned spaceflight experience, but Gemini 12 assumed a more conservative cast, as shown by a comparison of preliminary and final flight plans for the mission. In July, for example, the primary objectives were rendezvous and docking, preferably in the second spacecraft orbit, and extravehicular activity with the AMU. Two of the secondary goals were repeats, re-rendezvous from above, which was done first on Gemini 9A, and a tethered vehicle exercise from Gemini 11. Then came the decision to delete the AMU, and Mueller told Chuck Matthews that he also opposed the re-rendezvous plan. Next, rendezvous and docking shifted from second to the third spacecraft orbit, which had already been accomplished in previous missions. These changes, of course, affected the flight plan, delaying a final version. Charles Matthews told MSC's senior staff as late as mid-September that the hardware would be ready for launch, but the flight plan was still not firm. The final flight plan was not ready until October 20th, and it contained no surprises. 
Just about the only innovation was the non-spinning gravity gradient mode of station keeping. But that was not really new, since Conrad and Gordon had tried it, without success, on Gemini 11. There would be no trailblazing on this final mission. If, as Lovell said, essentially Gemini 12 didn't have a mission, it did have a theme to pierce the mystery of working in space. The strain of EVA experienced so severely by Cernan and Gordon not only clouded Gemini but raised doubts for Apollo. The lack of understanding of the difficulty emerged as a pressing concern that did much to shape Gemini's final flight. To increase the chances for success on Gemini 12, NASA now arranged to study in a careful and systematic way the basic features of EVA. Training and restraints for EVA underwent significant changes. In prior training, the crews had used zero-G aircraft flights to get the feel of weightlessness and to devise techniques for working. But experience had shown that this kind of training was useful in a very limited way, mainly for practice in getting into or out of the spacecraft. Pilots had to move fast and brace themselves before the airplane finished the Keplerian trajectory with its high G pullout. In space, they found that everything had to be done slowly and deliberately. Nor could the kind of fatigue that Cernan and Gordon had suffered in space be assessed in zero-G flights, because the delay between successive parabolas imposed a rest period. Almost a full day had to be spent in the aircraft to accumulate 15 minutes of weightlessness. But, in mid-1966, underwater simulation had been advanced to meet these shortcomings. Moving in a viscous and buoyant fluid was very much like moving against the restraints of a pressurized suit in a weightless vacuum. Aldrin could thus get a more accurate sense of the time and physical effort required for a task. But, he continued to train in the zero-g aircraft because it gave him the feel of weightlessness. On each of the last three missions, the pilots who went outside had complained that they needed more help in body positioning. Each spacecraft carried more restraints than the one before. The nine restraints on Gemini 9A had become 44 on Gemini 12. One helpful innovation was a waist tether that allowed the pilot to retrieve packages, turn wrenches with considerable torque, and attach the vehicle tether without undue stress. Other new features were handrails, handholds, and rings for hooking Aldrin's restraint belt to various places on the spacecraft and the target vehicle. At last, an EVA pilot had all the help he could need for performing a great variety of tasks, some of considerable complexity. After Gemini 9A's MSC Crew Systems Division puzzled over Cernan's fatigue, Collins' success in Gemini 10 suggested that the order 
in which he did his extravehicular task might have made them easier. Collins had done a stand-up EVA and then closed the hatch and rested before leaving the spacecraft. After Gordon had to come in early on Gemini 11, the Gemini Project Office decided that Aldrin would begin a stand-up exercise and then go on to more strenuous activity. Although flight planning was the most difficult part of getting ready for the final Gemini mission, hardware could have been a monumental problem. Spares were becoming scarce. This danger had been foreseen and reasonable provisions made long before the scheduled launch date. But program officials could not help being jumpy, fearing that they would be unable to replace a part that had suddenly gone awry. When the Gemini 9A Agena had fallen into the Atlantic Ocean, Gemini 12 was threatened with a major hardware shortage, an Agena and an Atlas to launch it. Replacing the Agena was no real problem. Lockheed's first production model, 5001, used for developmental testing at the Cape, had already been sent back to the Sunnyvale plant for refurbishment. Now it was simply a matter of tailoring it to the Gemini 12 mission. Finding a new Atlas was not so easy. General Dynamics did not keep a stockpile of Atlases on the assumption that someone would come along and buy them. The Gemini Project Office would have to find one that had been intended for some other program. Fortunately, when a lunar orbiter flight was delayed in May, it freed up an atlas that the Gemini Project Office might acquire. And when Mueller approved the purchase of a replacement vehicle on June 1st, MSC was already negotiating for an atlas at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. But this was not the standard vehicle Gemini had been using. It was the first of a new series with some features that had never before been tested in flight. Langley Research Center, in charge of the orbiter payload, was persuaded to turn its atlas over to Gemini in exchange for the one in California. Langley's Orbiter Atlas had only nine variances from the Gemini version, and the trade eased the minds of the MSC program engineers. By the end of September, the new Atlas waited on Pad 14 at Cape Kennedy for its call into action. Now with all the parts ready, we can begin the flight of Gemini 12. The official Mission objectives for this flight were to perform rendezvous and docking with the Agena target vehicle, to conduct three EVAs, to conduct a tethered station keeping exercise, to perform dock maneuvers using the Agena propulsion system to change orbit, and to demonstrate an automatic reentry. There were also 14 scientific, medical, and technological experiments on board. As the launch day neared, spare parts became a problem. An autopilot and a gyroscope in the launch vehicle had to be replaced. Then, the replacements were themselves replaced. But finally, on Veterans Day, November 11, 1966, 
at 2.08 p.m., the substitute Atlas lifted the refurbished Agena from Pad 14 and lofted it into orbit just as planned. A few minutes earlier, over on Pad 19, the pressurized suited crew had shuffled up a ramp bearing signs on their back that read, The and End. This bit of humor was more than symbolism, for when launch vehicle number 12 lifted off at 3.46 p.m., the Gemini preparations team faded into space rocket history. Here's the audio. We're just at this moment ready to pick up the uh, countdown here at Cape Kennedy. We're now two minutes and 50 seconds and counting, Robert. And all is ready here on launch pad 19 as astronauts James Lovell and Edwin Aldrin wait inside their spacecraft on top of the 11-story Titan II rocket. Uh, the uh, Gina target is now over the Gulf of Mexico. It's moving through space at five miles per second. And when it moves over the state of Florida, the Titan II rocket will be triggered to begin the last rendezvous flight in this Gemini program. The countdown now is 2 minutes and 23 seconds and still counting. Continue to monitor at 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. We have ignition. Titan II rocket has been triggered, and astronauts James Lovell and Edwin Alden are on their way into space to conclude the Gemini project in the next four days. The liftoff was clean and beautiful as the silver rocket climbs into the Florida sky. Command pilot Lovell, the space flight champion in time spent in orbit, is scanning the Gemini 12 instruments and reporting their readings to the Mission Control Center in Houston. As you can hear, the rocket's roar is at its peak as the sound is wept across our Successfully, the astronauts hope to catch the Agena three orbits from now over the southern, uh, over the southern Atlantic Ocean, approaching the western, uh, the eastern coast of Africa. The Gemini 12 rocket is beginning to tilt over it, in its flight path over the ocean. It appears to be rising on a transparent column of heat. The rocket that uses fuel which does not burn bright flame. Uh, instead of the usual fire we're generally used to watching here, we are now losing sight of it. But in Houston, Texas, at the Mission Control Center, Terry White is there. He has all the maps and charts necessary to watch these men go into orbit. We switch now for his continuous commentary. We are now receiving the live voices of the astronauts from the Gemini 12 spacecraft. Flight Dynamics says all data looks good on the Gemini 12 launch. Mission Control is go for staging. Roger, you're go for staging on the ground. 
Staging all occurred at 2 plus 36. to transmissions from the spacecraft. Initial steering on the uh, second stage of the Gemini launch vehicle looks good. Perfect staging. After the launch, Francis Carey, Martin's chief test conductor, and Colonel John Albert, chief of the Gemini launch vehicle division, took justifiable pride in their 12 for 12 record. But, they mourned the fact that the job had ended, and the team would soon break up. The fact that it was over could not have been more vividly underlined when shortly after launch, the wreckers began hacking the launch stand into scrap iron. Jiminy was the past, and Apollo was the future. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.